From the MGMA in-home studios, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. You know, you're cruising along in your car and suddenly you hit a pothole, right? It clunks. Your car isn't ruined. Your car hasn't crashed, right? You don't have to pull over, but it certainly reminds you that you are driving, right? And that's kind of what turbulence is in airplanes. It's not going to crash the airplane. It could cause some damage inside. It could even cause some injuries, but it's not going to crash the plane and be the end of it all. Mm -hmm. And so I call turbulence the things that pop up along our path that we didn't expect. That's Amelia Rose Earhart talking about how to navigate the turbulence we face in our lives. We'll hear more from Amelia in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. MGMA's Medical Practice Excellence Operations Conference is May 19th through the 21st in Austin, Texas. The Operations Conference gathers business leaders and professionals from across the healthcare industry to discuss optimized medical practice operations that address some of the biggest challenges facing healthcare organizations today. Go to mgma.com slash events to register. Let Scrub In Uniforms build you a free private uniform web store where you control what your team can buy. All of your favorite scrub, lab coat, outerwear, in corporate apparel brands at exclusive MGMA member discounts. Your employees can do their own shopping anytime. So go to mgma.scrubin.com to learn more. Our guest today is Amelia Rose Earhart, an around-the-world pilot, a keynote speaker, and a TV personality. Amelia is a keynote speaker at this year's MGMA's Operations Conference, where she'll be presenting on leading through turbulence, create your flight plan, and building your team for success. Amelia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Daniel. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, well, I want to just check in with you here. It's so a lot of our listeners may know you or know of you, but I just want to get some background here. So just to kind of cover the bases, you're an around-the-world pilot, which is amazing, and a keynote speaker, a TV personality. Um, I want to get, I want to hone in on that flight part of it. So is this something that, you know, where did this start? Somewhere in childhood? Did you always just want adventures? I mean, where did that love of the air and flying and all that come from? Well, I'll tell you, I know the exact moment it all began when my parents made the decision to make name me Amelia Earhart. It's this funny story in our family. You know, my mom was like, Glenn, our last name is Earhart, spelled the same way as the first Amelia. Let's name our daughter Amelia. Amelia Earhart. This is a beautiful way to tie her to history and inspire her. And my dad was like, whoa, whoa, she's going to feel like she has to fly and feel like she has to fly around the world someday. We can't do that. Well, mom went out and I got the name, but there was no pile of money waiting for me to take flight lessons. I mean, this is something I really had to figure out on my own. And that's what my keynote speech is all about is the, all the humorous parts, all the character building parts of having this wild name, but really more importantly, what I turned it into, which was a flight around the world to honor the first Amelia Earhart. That is so cool. So 
Um, besides flying, I mean, were you always, I guess, adventurous, you know, or what was your, what was your childhood like as far as adventures, sports, athletics, outdoors, anything like that? Well, I, I grew up in the desert. We were um, living in Southern California. My parents kind of homesteaded this ranch. We had horses. I grew up riding a pony named Taffy. Um, we were rolling, you know, we were building forts outside. We were riding motorcycles. So my parents really let me do whatever on that big 10 acres out there. And I think that did instill a sense of adventure. But once I got into school, every adult that learned my name was Amelia Earhart literally looked me in the eye and said, you better be a pilot someday. You better fly around the world someday. And I think that it kind of got to me, I, you know, cause I thought to myself, if I don't fly around the world someday, am I not living up to this big name? And will people kind of feel disappointed that I never tried it? And I'm kind of an overachiever and I guess I went for it. And I'm so glad that I did now, but looking back, I could have very easily just said, no, it's not my thing and had an entirely different career. Um, but growing up, you know, I felt a lot of that pressure. And so in my early twenties, I saved up while I was paying my way through school, saved up enough for a first flight lesson. And I went for it and I fell in love because that first moment when you take off and you see that separation above the earth, you get that sense of perspective and it's really calming up there, even though it's really intense. Um, it can be calming as well. Okay. Well, my, I, I was remembering as I was preparing to talk to you that uh, in fifth grade, uh, my daughter's fifth grade, they had a Halloween and they, they said dress up as a historical character and then yes. give a speech and she dressed up as Amelia Earhart and so we still have photos of that. So I'm going to tell her that I actually interviewed uh, an Amelia Earhart uh, today so she'll get a kick out of that. So that's really cool. Um, you better send me one of those photos because I, I love people tell me that quite often. And I don't want to reveal the full detail of my name and my relation sure. during the podcast, because that's like the juiciest part of my keynote speech. But I will tell you this. Um, I don't know. It's just going to be, it's going to be a fun way to share the story and that I think everyone can relate to because it comes down to identity and the things that we're told about who we are and who we're supposed to be, but really more importantly, how we can find our own path and take those really unique headings, if that makes sense. It totally does. That's so cool. So we, we got to quit bearing the lead here. I know that our mm -hmm. audience wants to know about that around the world flight. So that is just an amazing adventure. Walk us through that flight. I mean, people who may not know, I mean, just give us an idea where you started, what you did, how long it took, things like that. Give us some of those details. Well, I'm looking on the floor because I have a globe right here. <laughs> In fact, I have a globe with my route on it. Okay, so the around the world journey was based on Amelia's original path, but she was in a Lockheed Electra this old aluminum plane that you really couldn't fly very far. So she had a lot more stops built in. I did the flight in a Pilatus PC-12NG, which is this beautiful four and a half million dollar Swiss built aircraft. Okay, I talked them into letting me borrow the plane. We put a fuel tank inside and what began in Oakland, California, continued to, am I going the right way? So from Oakland to Denver to Miami, from there, Trinidad and Tobago, Natal, Brazil, Dakar, Senegal, Sao Tome, all the way across Africa to Tanzania, the Seychelles, 
the Maldives, Singapore, Darwin, Australia, Papua New Guinea, Christmas Island, Kiribati, Honolulu, back to Oakland. And that stretch there between Honolulu and Oakland is the longest stretch of ocean that any airplane can fly anywhere in the world without a place to land. Okay, that is the longest. And so on that last leg, you know, that was intense, right? It was a limited amount of fuel with that 200 extra gallons. Um, you know, and it was a lot of teamwork as well. You know, I had a co-pilot on this journey and that's something that sometimes disappoints people when they hear about my fly, they go, oh, you didn't do it alone. Some people can do it alone, but look, when you're flying over this much water mm -hmm. and you want to come back safe and you're doing it for the reasons of completing something that means so much to you, but doing it in a way that keeps you feeling safe. My, it made my family feel a lot better, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And so I had this incredible co-pilot on my journey, which is a big part of my message about how to develop your flight crew and find a good co-pilot that you can communicate with, even in the most stressful situations when you're over a 60,000 or you're near a 60,000 foot thunderstorm over the Indian Ocean. You want a second brain there when there's especially only one single engine on a plane. And the way I think that relates to everybody is that in critical and high stress situations, having someone to turn to and get a second opinion on can be the difference between living in stress and fighting fears the entire way along your journey or resolving them and having kind of a check pilot with you to say, hey, let's do this together efficiently and quickly so we can enjoy the rest of this flight. Okay. So you gave us what the journey was. How long did that take? So it was over the course of 18 days. Okay. Um, it was very fast. I wanted the story on the news to follow, right? The Today Show was tracking us. It was moment to moment. Here's where they are, a little red dot going around the world. Right. We had built educational plans, all that. So 18 days, we had 16 stops. So two rest days built in, one in the Maldives. It was the halfway point conveniently. Um, and another in Australia where we did massive engine checks with our Pratt & Whitney team to make sure the engine was ready to go over the South Pacific, which was the most critical portion of the flight. And um, 14 countries, I think I said, 102.6 flight hours, something like that. And um, we had no squawks, no issues on the aircraft itself, but we did fly through some massive storms. We had some very big challenges in Papua New Guinea where the airport officials claimed we landed at the wrong airport mm. and paying them several thousand dollars to get out of that situation, <laughs> which is very common on these around the world journeys. People get held up for money quite often. And so um, I've got lots of stories to share from, you know, faraway places, but they all seem to have a lesson built into them, which is as a keynote speaker, just a dream to have these stories to, to tap into. Well, I do want to follow up with that then. What was the scariest, most dangerous, I don't know, most anxiety ridden part of the flight? I mean, was there, is that where it was or what, what kind of shook you up a little bit or did anything? So part of the preparation for the flight for both Shane and myself separately, we went to open water survival training. So we went out to Groton, Connecticut, and you get pushed out into a, a boat, you get pushed into the ocean, you have to use your life raft and simulate going through an engine failure. Because when your plane only has one engine, if it fails, which one in every million flight hours or flight turns on an engine is a failure for Pratt & Whitney PT6, I believe, which is minuscule, obviously. So I was really 
making data-driven decisions, trying to play the odds to say, look, if we do this right, this engine will continue over this ocean. But that moment that you're asking about, one of the most scary is mathematically, I could actually show it, show you where it was on a globe because it's called the point of no return. And it's a mathematical calculation that you have to make as a pilot when you're flying over the water, because you need to know the point at which from point A to point B, you can, if you have an engine failure right here, no longer over the water, no longer turn back and glide back to the edge of the runway. That was like 80 miles offshore on a 2,400 nautical mile flight. So having that feeling of, okay, past this point, if we have an engine failure or something else catastrophic happens, we are having to ditch or land the airplane on the water. And we go through that training in preparation for all of this to prepare to keep our minds able to access those checklists we built in survival training. It's actually one of the biggest lessons in the keynote is planning for obstacles and using these controlled environments like our home life, especially our work from home environments to really research the things that we fear the most so that we can go further, right? As a pilot who had only flown over land previously, of course I was afraid to fly over the water. That's why I also wanted a co-pilot. I wanted that second opinion there to be able to say, does the engine sound normal to you? Right, because that's a moment, right? Yeah. We said that many times. And Shane expressed his fears as well. And he's a long-term Pilatus pilot who I hired to come along this journey with me because here's an interesting fact. If I would have done this flight solo, I would have needed over 8,600 hours in that particular aircraft to qualify for the insurance. I would have been in my 60s or 70s. Instead, I chose to do it in my 20s as pilot in command of a journey and a co-pilot with me. And I feel so good about that because now looking back as my 39-year-old self, I learned the lessons and now I have another human who I've experienced that journey with as well. So um, yeah, I know I kind of went on a tangent there. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I mean, there's so much but, to, we could sit here and talk all day about this flight because I mean, it took 18 days so we yes. could fill some time. Well, I do want to share one more really yeah, incredible moment um, that happened during the trip. So before I had launched on the flight, I started a nonprofit called the Fly with Amelia Foundation. And we had girls ages 16 to 18 all across the U.S. send in essays. And we had pre-picked these women, young women, who would get $7,500 each to learn to fly. Unplug my laptop. I think it's buzzing. Um, so each got $7,500 to learn to fly. And as Shane and I were flying around the globe and we were literally at the latitude and longitude at 27,000 feet over Howland Island circling around, there's a setting in the Pilatus cockpit that you can circle around an exact point in space and you set it on autopilot. And so Shane and I did that and we sat back and with a little GPS device, I tweeted out the names of the girls who had won the scholarships. Oh, wow. So they were learning on social media where Amelia Earhart, this is the place where she wanted to land more than anything. Her and mm -hmm. her navigator, Fred Noonan, are still out there somewhere, mm -hmm. right? Somewhere missing. And so that special place in the world, because it is such an extraordinarily solo place, I feel like it's kind of mine and Amelia's, right? That's the place where we kind of meet. And so it's a really symbolic, meaning, meaningful part of giving away those scholarship dollars. And now a lot of those young women are professional pilots, and I'm so proud of that. That is so cool. That's a great story. So I do want to ask you the, the third. So we asked you the scariest part. You asked, you told us about a peak experience as well. 
but what about the <laughs> keeping the body and the mind active? I mean, I don't, yeah. I've never flown a plane. I've been on a plane and I don't know how different that is. You've done both obviously, but I don't know how different that is, but people get really, uh, for lack of a better word, bored, restless, yes. um, you know, their mind, their body, they want to stretch. They want to do all those things. I've seen some pictures of you in the plane. It's not expansive. I mean, it's not huge. So you, how, what did you do to overcome? Uh, I, I don't know if the right words, boredom or just to keep yourself engaged and to keep your body loose, stretch. So you don't cramp yeah. up anything like that. What'd you do? What's the, what's the trick there? Yeah, that is such a great question. Nobody ever asked that. So we were flying for between between eight and 10 hours a day. We were waking up three, four o'clock in the morning, taking off before dark because flying eastbound for eight to 10 hours, you're crossing multiple time zones. Mm -hmm. We were losing hours as we flew. We were also landing in the dark because the sun is going this way and we're flying this way. It's oh. such an image, right? Oh, so we, man. we were shortening our days in a sense. And so when we would land, we would go through customs, which in Papua New Guinea took about four hours. Um, <laughs> we had to take the bathroom off the plane, the interior walls off the plane to save weight because we had added that 200 gallon auxiliary fuel tank. So it also made us um, a bit of an unusual airplane, which doesn't look good in customs when you've got something that looks like a giant bomb in the back of your plane, right? <laughs> and I will show those pictures during the presentation. Yeah. But we would show up and it was just so, it took forever. So keep in mind, I was in my twenties, um, <laughs> my late twenties. And so I was eating like a lot of granola bars. I was drinking a lot of Red Bull. I was trying to drink a lot of water, but I also had just met Shane. And so I really didn't want to have any like bathroom issues, not to be yeah. crude, but with this brand no, no. new person who I had just met and we're going on this journey, I lost a lot of weight on that trip. Um, but then when we got to Hawaii, this is one of the most beautiful moments. So Amelia attempted her first flight to Hawaii going westbound. Okay. So she crashed in Honolulu. Mm. It's kind of a, a, she flew there a lot, but she was the first woman to make that trip in 1937. I mean, mm. think about how wild that is mm. that she attempted that. I mean, right. way back then, celestial navigation. So when she stayed there, she was at this, um, the Royal Hawaiian Hotel, and it's this pink hotel on the beach. And when I planned the flight around the world, a few of the hotels were chosen for me because of security reasons and things like that. But most were just very interesting, crazy locations, like staying in a, you know, um, a, a hut in Tanzania and staying, you know, in really opulent places in Singapore. It kind of varied. And so when we got there, I walked into the hotel and I knew that they had decked it out in Amelia. But Shane and I were finishing her journey. We were about to make that very last leg. And we walked in and there were images of her everywhere. Mm. They had also saved like the room where she was sitting in right before she launched on her flight. And it was all pristine. It was all the same. It's like this glowing space in Hawaii. And we had an amazing cheeseburger on the beach and then flew back home in the morning. Okay. I, <laughs> just because I, I'm just, I get restless. I need to like, you know, read a book or watch something on. Oh yeah. The, and there I was got, a lot of media. So, so what did y'all do in, when you're on an, a six or an eight or whatever hour flight, are you just doing the navigation the entire time? Are y'all singing show tunes? Or are you <laughs> doing trivia, yeah. trivia with each other? I mean, what are you doing? So you just don't go crazy there. 
Well, so we're both wearing headsets, right? We okay. have both headsets. And the okay. cool thing, this was the, the probably the lifesaver on this okay. trip. Okay. Air traffic control is a big deal on a flight like this. Right. You are in, I would say you're probably communicating once on average every five minutes, but sometimes, oh, okay. Okay. sometimes it's 20 times in one minute. I mean, it mm-hmm. can get, and think about all those dialects. English is the official language of aviation. Oh, I didn't know that. But cool. if you're speaking English with someone in Papua New Guinea, right? It's and translating across a high frequency radio or a VHS radio. So, or VHF radio. So if you think about how scratchy that could be. So Shane and I would have to listen to air traffic control and often reply. I told Shane, because it was my flight, I said, I want to do 99% of the communication Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because that was his role. It was to join me, to be there for me. He said, he was such a cool guy. He said, I'm only here as your backup. This is your flight. He was such a supporter of this whole woman in aviation thing too, which I love that I found him in that way. So anyways, um, the communication, we would be able to listen to music, to playlists, to podcasts. We would have um, my, the movie I was watching at the time was Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh yeah. Um, It was just such a beautiful story of adventure, right? So every time I watch that movie now, I think about the flight, but those headphones had this feature built in where the audio would stop and it would go, it would squelch, we would (laughs) communicate. And then every time I would click my mic, it would pause the video podcast or music and we would communicate. And so we would get back into it like 10 minutes later and be like, then Bon Jovi would like blast and it would be like, oh, that, that's what we were doing. <laughs> so it really made it feel like, um, it made it feel like a movie, right? You're cru- mm-hmm. like the sunsets, the sunrises, and you're cruising and you're listening to these tunes. It was very special. That is so cool. Well, thanks for that insider view <laughs> of what happens there. So you've mentioned it several times. So let's just get to it. You will be speaking at MGMA's operations conference. That's in Austin, Texas, Saturday, May 21st. Your session is titled Leading Through Turbulence, Create Your Flight Plan and Building Your Team for Success. That is such an awesome title. We've heard a lot about it already, but just give us the elevator speech, speech, so to speak. (laughs) Oh, you got it. This is such a fun conversation. Yes, I'm so looking forward to this event. You picked a great city, number one. It's always nice to go somewhere fun like Austin. So I may even come in a little early. We'll see. (laughs) Um, But, you know, this is the message I share about what it means to take a pilot's perspective on the turbulence that we face here on the ground. Okay. I went through all that flight training. I paid probably tens upon tens of thousands of dollars to get the instrument rating, commercial rating, Pilates training, et cetera. That being said, I have extracted those pilots' perspectives on turbulence that are ringing true down here on the ground as well. And here's a really good example, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, In aviation, there is something called a holding pattern. I'm sure you're familiar also with the analogy, a holding pattern, but I wanna go a little bit deeper into that. So when air traffic control would come across our headsets and say 5-8 November Gulf, uh, enter the hold at such and such altitude, whatever, we have to slow our speed down. So we're pulling the fuel back and we're entering into this really complicated entry point, but into an oval in the sky that is determined by GPS and it's on all these maps and you can do it without GPS as well, but it's designed to keep aircraft away from emergencies a storm, a fire at the airport, um, another aircraft in your way or congested airspace. And so those holding patterns can get kind of crowded, right? Um, And COVID 
felt a lot like a holding pattern. Here we were just cruising along and then all of a sudden we're like, right? And a power way bigger than us comes in and says, enter the hold. And guess what? You're going to be flying around with an F-16, a Cessna 172, and a biplane that can't figure out how to make a Zoom call, right? And it's going to be very hard to work from home in that holding pattern. And I think now that we're getting the chance to finally exit this holding pattern, much like an airplane would, we can't call and say, hey, we've got passengers in the back and we really need to get out of here. They're like, it doesn't matter. This is for everyone, right? Like this is for the safety of the general airspace. So the only thing I can control in that holding pattern is how I prepare about the weather along my route to my next destination, the speed I wanna take, the altitude I wanna fly at. I wanna brief my passengers about where we're going. I wanna know the plan, right? And so there's all these pilot mindsets where I'm like, wow, if I just do that here on the ground, I am smooth sailing because I've covered all my bases. So I've made these really um, simple little worksheets as well. And I would love to share them with your team, but it's how to pre-flight an idea. Because as pilots, we do an entire walk around of an airplane before we take off. We wanna know who flew it last, if it had a hard landing, right? These are all metaphors and analogies for projects we wanna launch into. Whether we're trying to join a new team or build a new website, all of these connections apply. And now I'm finding that teams that I've worked with like Apple, which I'm so excited to say, um, <laughs> Apple Computers, <laughs> um, Capital One, Berkshire Hathaway, Northrop Grumman, these huge organizations are saying that they're now using these terms like turbulence and holding pattern in their everyday talk with each other. And that just makes me super proud. And so those are the ideas I wanna share with you all because I was thinking today, this morning, as I was prepping for our podcast chat, I was thinking, what do aviation and healthcare really specifically have in common? And this is it. It is a rules-based organization. And the only reason it works is because of all the rules. But here's the thing, as a pilot, I was able to add a fuel tank, follow Amelia's route, but do it my way, right? Have go through all this turbulence about my name. And we'll talk about that in the keynote. But I still played by the rules, but I did it my own way. And so you kind of have to follow and sneak a fine line along those rules. And I can see you nodding, right? Is healthcare like that as well? Absolutely. You know, you have to follow the specific guidelines of a particular type of procedure or whatever it may be. That's why doctors and other clinicians go to school for so long because they have to learn all those rules and all those guidelines and stick to them. And they can also add to it. They can through trial and error, find new ways to develop a new procedure, but then get that approved as well. So that's, it's, it's very similar in that way. So that's such a cool analogy. I'm glad that you connect with that because as I was thinking about it today, you know, I found that when I was planning my flight around the world, which took me, you know, of course, I've been dreaming about it since I was a kid and in a very abstract way, but it started to come into focus in my mid twenties when I was learning to fly but the most intense time was between 2012 and 2014. And in that time, I found that if I just said to myself, look, don't complain about the rules existing, accept that and literally move to the next step, which is figuring out how you can use the rule to your advantage or get permissions, right? By following other rules. I found that my flight progress just amplified tenfold. And so it's an acceptance of, look, the rules exist. We've all agreed to them. That's why we're in this industry. But from here, let's get really confident about moving forward through them and also starting to talk about how to navigate turbulence. 
because turbulence is, of course, the big metaphor for anything that pops up that we didn't expect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like these last few years. And that is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. You actually use this phrase, embracing the turbulence. So give us an idea, I mean, either an analogy or an explanation of what do you mean by that? And how do we, who aren't pilots, but are just navigating life as we've all had to do these last couple of years with COVID, how do we embrace the tur turbulence and get something out of that? Yeah, well, I think the, the turbulence analogy is, um, we'll start with a car, actually. You know, when you're just driving along and you're listening to Bon Jovi, I don't know why he's not here today. <laughs> Living on a prayer, you know. <laughs> I know, I've been in We're a lot of airports there. lately. I feel like maybe I heard him there. But anyways, you know, you're cruising along in your car and suddenly you hit a pothole, right? It clunks, your car isn't, ruined your car hasn't crashed right you don't have to pull over but it certainly reminds you that you are driving right okay. and that's kind of what turbulence is in airplanes it's not going to crash the airplane it could cause some damage inside it could even cause some injuries but it's not going to crash the plane and be the end of it all mm -hmm. and so i call turbulence the things that pop up along our path that we didn't expect right somebody um, on your team is really tough to communicate with you've got um challenges within your group that are popping up because people don't understand their roles. That's a good transition to talk about like flight crew and how to communicate in these really concise matters or really concise ways. In fact, mm -hmm. I just used this example when I was speaking um, down in Florida earlier this week, pilots have this funny thing that they do. So if I wanna give you control of the airplane, okay? I would say, I have control of the aircraft. I'm giving you control of the aircraft. You say to me, I have control of the aircraft. And then I repeat to you, you have the control of the aircraft. It's called positive exchange of controls. And it's literally the most clear way to communicate. And it sounds so ridiculous to say that you and I would do that, but mm -hmm. that's kind of what we do in emails in a way, right? We say, mm -hmm. here's, you know, are you confirmed? Are you confirmed? Are you confirmed? And we go, yes. And we don't worry about it. We put it out of our minds, but think about the communications that we're in that kind of hang and linger, right? right. It, it can be, I find that personally, I waste a lot of time thinking about what to say or what I should say. And I find that if I act more like a pilot would, if air traffic control communicates with me too, I can't like put it off. You must deal with it in the moment. And that's what keeps the flight moving forward. Okay. That is so cool. So before we sign off, I have to ask you what's the next big adventure for Amelia Rose Earhart. What are you? <laughs> what are you planning? What are you? Are you gonna get on a spaceship, a rocket with Elon Musk and go to oh Mars? God. I mean, what's I happening? <laughs> I would totally go in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, yeah, as you know, adventure comes in all forms, right? Yep. There will be phases in life when I am in that cockpit and doing mm -hmm. adventurous Amelia stuff. Right now, my cockpit is my office, right? I am so excited. This professional speaking thing that is going on in my life right now is so validating and it feels so good to share these stories. I finally wrote the book about this journey, which I'm thinking about a working title of learning to love the turbulence, you know, because that's what it's about realizing that we're, we can handle these bumps, right? That airplane that we fly in, in and out of all these commercial airports, it can handle so much more stress on the wings that we've ever seen it when those wings are really bowing, right? And I think we're the same way. We can handle so much more than we think we can. And so we can push it a little. Pilots are a little cocky sometimes, right? We're like confident and we can do it. It's a little much, but there are good sides to that where 
I find that it adds to a lot of confidence in other areas of my life. So the big goals next, publish the book. Um, and then also on a softer side of the flight, I've been starting to paint all of the um, most beautiful aerial photos from my flight around the world. So I, you know, when you're flying over beaches mm -hmm. and you see those sandy shores, and I found this way to do fluid art to where it looks like you're flying over tropical sands in the Seychelles and the Maldives. So I'm starting to um, sell those online and actually putting the website up this week. And a real special part of that is that my dad is doing all the custom framing. <laughs> that is so cool. What a great story. So I want to, before we leave then, I want to check in on two things there then. One, where would people go if they want to access that art, learn more about your story, anything else? Where, where do they go to do that? So um, my website is ameliaroseearhart.com. I also love Instagram. So that's a good place to connect with me. Um, I'm terrible at my DMs right now just because there's so much cool stuff going on. So social media is something I'm looking to get back into and hopefully to be more on the YouTube side of things as well because um, I find that the longer format social media is a little more enjoyable these days. So connect with me there. And then my... Um, yeah, there's just all sorts of videos out there online. If you search, especially the around the world stuff, there's lots of okay. overflight in crazy places. So if you like to get lost and, and like kind of geeky aviation stuff, it's all out there. Okay. And then the last part of that is you mentioned the book. So give us an idea. I don't know what stage the book is in. So when do you have an idea of when that would be available for people? What's the latest and greatest on that? <laughs> right now I have a manuscript and it is edited. I hired an incredible ghostwriter to work with me to really extract these stories. Right. I can speak all day long, but writing it down and typing was a real issue for me. And so that's another example of finding a co-pilot on right. a journey that I need to make. So the book is written, but right now I'm submitting it um, to publishers. Okay. I might even self-publish. We'll see, yeah. but you know, um, that's some more research that I'm kind of diving into. And that's a good, it's a good example to tell myself, take your own advice, right? You went to survival training, like don't be afraid to, to put it out there because it is intimidating to pitch your book, but I hope to do it very soon. Well, that's great. So be back in touch with us when the book is ready and we'll have you back on and do a book of the month club deal. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll analyze, dissect, we'll, we'll talk about the book and see what all's in there. But it's been a pleasure talking to you, Amelia. And Looking forward to having you entertain and educate the MGMA audience in Austin. Absolutely. And I am a people person. So when we're there, come up and say hi. I would love to hear your stories. Everyone loves to share their flying stories and turbulence stories. So um, I can't wait. And I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm also honored to be your speaker. So thank you very much. And blue skies. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Amelia Rose Earhart, an around-the-world pilot and keynote speaker. Amelia will be the keynote speaker at MGMA's Operations Conference on Saturday, May 21st in Austin, Texas. We'd also like to thank Scrub In and MGMA's Operations Conference for sponsoring this week's show. You can let Scrub In Uniforms build you a free private uniform web store where you control what your team can buy. Your employees can do their own shopping anytime. Go to mgma.scrubin.com to learn more. 
The operations conference will be held May 19th through the 21st in Austin, Texas, where it will gather business leaders and professionals from across the healthcare industry to discuss optimized medical practice operations that address some of the biggest challenges facing healthcare organizations today. Go to mgma.com events to register. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. And to access all of our podcasts, go to mgma.com slash listen. And if you want to add to the conversation, email us at podcast at mgma.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at MGMA Daniel. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Declan McGee, one of the producers for the MGMA Insights podcast. If you like the work we're doing, please consider becoming an MGMA member. Learn more at mgma.com slash membership. Thanks.